You're listening, listening to, to Bible, Bible Plus. Bible Plus from Seesaw. Bible Plus is a podcast featuring short, daily discussions of every chapter in the New Testament. Bible Plus is designed to increase Bible reading, understanding, and enjoyment. Get more out of the Bible. Hello, everyone. Today we will dive into Matthew 8. Just to recap, the book of Matthew is a book about Jesus Christ as the King's Savior. In the last few chapters, the Lord Jesus presented the constitution of the kingdom of the heavens in the Sermon on the Mount. Here we saw that the kingdom people are constituted with righteousness, and they live in the reality of the kingdom by doing the will of the Father. In chapter 8, we will see this King Savior continuing his ministry with an emphasis on three things. In the first part of this chapter, this wonderful Christ is the one who saves his people. And in the second half of this chapter, this Christ is the king with all authority. In the middle of this chapter, Christ presents the way to follow the king. Verses 1 through 17 of chapter 8 mirror similar sections of the Lord's ministry described by Mark chapters 1 and 2 and Luke chapters 4 and 7 through 7. However, the order in which these events are portrayed vary in each gospel. As believers who love God's word, we have to realize that this difference is not incidental or accidental. Actually, nothing in God's word is accidental. Each of these accounts have a very special and significant meaning. Mark's account of Christ's ministry is concise and follows a historical record of Christ as the slave savior carrying out God's will. Luke expands these three accounts and presents them to emphasize the morality of the man-savior. And the book of Matthew presents Christ as the king-savior with an emphasis on doctrine. This doctrine concerns Christ in his earthly ministry, and in his earthly ministry he is establishing principles as to how he will carry out the establishment of his heavenly kingdom. At the beginning of this chapter, Jesus Christ comes down from the mountain. Here we see our Christ. God himself came down from the heavens to earth as a man to reach us. In his coming down to earth, he heals three groups of people. First, he heals the leprous Jew. Then he heals the centurion's servant. And then he heals Peter's mother-in-law. On the one hand, Christ's healing man is a very wonderful and very personal experience. But in view of what God intends to present through this book, concerning his kingdom, these three events correspond to God's salvation to the believing Jews, the believing Gentiles, and eventually the Jews who respond in faith during his second coming. All these three parties eventually compose God's heavenly kingdom. So now we come to verse 2. A leper approached Jesus and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can cleanse me. This leper recognized Jesus' position as the Lord God and believed into him. In the Bible, uh, we see many cases of leprosy, and in each case it involves man's rebellion against God. For example, in the book of Numbers, Miriam, Moses' sister, rose up against Moses together with Aaron, despite God appointing Moses as his representative to his people. As a result, she became leprous. This leprosy was an outward manifestation of death, which is the issue of rebellion against God. Another example is in 2 Kings 5. 
Naaman's leprosy was removed due to obedience and Elisha's servant became leprous due to disobedience. Leprosy is a symbol of rebellion. This leprous man represents the Jewish people, God's chosen people, who rebelled against God. But Christ, as the heavenly king, came to them first among all peoples, not to judge them, but to heal them. Actually, in God's eyes, we are all leprous. Not only Israel, but we all have disobeyed and rebelled against God. And leprosy is a contagious disease. According to Jewish law, the leprous were to be excluded due to uncleanness. But the Lord Jesus, as the kingly Savior, not only approached this man, but touched him. And by one touch, immediately this man's leprosy was cleansed. Hallelujah. The second healing involved the healing of the centurion's servant in verses 5-13. through 13. The centurion and his household represent the Gentiles who were outside of God's people. Due to their sinfulness and godlessness, they, we, became paralyzed, and we were de- became dead in our function just like this servant. The centurion, though, burdened for um, his servant, answered the Lord and said, Lord, I am not fit for you to enter under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. The centurion believed not only that in the kingly savior as the one with the authority, but also in his word. He realized that the word of Christ was more than sufficient and this word conveyed his heavenly authority. And the Lord Jesus marveled and at this stronger faith. I believe many of us listening to this podcast are, are Gentiles. And we were steeped in sinfulness and unbelief. However, we need to see that God's word has the power to heal us. The centurion joined himself to the word of Jesus by responding in faith. None of us have ever met the Lord in the flesh. And many of us may not have had a supernatural spiritual experience. However, I hope many of us can testify that we have been saved by the enlivening, regenerating word of God the word of the gospel. And again and again and again, we need to come to the Lord in his word and say, Lord, only speak a word and I will be healed. Then we come to the third group of people healed by the Lord, uh, which is represented by Peter's mother-in-law. Peter's mother-in-law was healed in Peter's house, which represents the house of Israel. The kingly savior, after giving salvation to the believing Jews and after the fullness of the salvation of the Gentiles, will come back to the Jewish people at the end of this age to save them. Many um, of the Jewish people are in a fever. They are intoxicated and entangled in many pursuits apart from Jehovah. Um, This describes the situation today. But at his second coming, the Lord Jesus Christ will return to his people and will recover them. And this is further prophesied of in Romans 11, verses 25 through 26, and Zechariah 12, 10. Now we come to the second half of this chapter, which concerns Christ as the heavenly king with a heavenly authority. In verses 24 through 26, he rebuked the winds and the waves. In verses 29 through 34, this heavenly king cast out the demons from within man where they do not belong. And in the following chapter, in chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, we see that this king has the highest authority, God's authority, to forgive sinners. The emphasis of Christ's kingly authority is not over the physical things 
and in producing supernatural miracles, which is something that we, we easily look to when we see these miracles. But just as Christ is establishing a heavenly kingdom, the authority by which he, exer- which he exercises um, his authority is, is not in the seen realm, but in the divine and unseen realm. See, the Lord didn't need to rebuke the winds and the waves if they were devoid of life. You don't use the word rebuke um, in referring to natural phenomenon. Jesus rebuked the fallen angels and demons behind the wind and the sea. In Ephesians 6.23, the fallen angels of Satan are in the wind. And according to Matthew 8.32, the sea is the temporary territory of the demons. The fallen angels in the air and the demons in the water wanted to frustrate the king from going to the other side of the sea to continue his ministry, and thus the Lord rebuked them. In our daily life, there are many things in our environment that frustrate us from taking the Lord as king. Um, There may be even things in our psychological environment, dark and evil intentions as fiery darts thrown at our mind by the enemy that make us despair or anxious. There are so many things which seem that they are out of our control. And yes, all of these things may be out of our control, but we need to realize that Jesus is King. He has authority not only over the winds and the waves, but over the evil spiritual forces behind the scenes. Rather than clinging to our boat, we need to cling to the one who has all authority. And just like the leprous man and centurion, we need to be men of faith and say, Lord Jesus, I trust in you. Now we will conclude this time by coming back to a few verses in the middle of this chapter. In verse 20, the Lord said to the scribe who wanted to follow him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of heaven have their roosts, but the Son of Man has nowhere that he may lay his head. In these verses, we see that God, God has a need. Not only does he need a kingdom to rule in, but a dwelling place to make his habitation. The scribe and the disciple and the proceeding verses thought that the cost of following this person was too great. But I will tell you that God's intention is not to strip us of earthly satisfaction, but his intention is to give us his kingdom life, which empowers us and allows us to take him as our king. It's by opening to him and saying, Lord Jesus, thank you that you're not only my savior, but you are also my Lord. By doing so, we give him a place to lay his head. In Isaiah 66, verse 2, God's resting place is not a physical dwelling, but man. And as we become his resting place, he becomes our resting place. In this chapter, we see so many things that our kingly Savior is for us and has done for us. May we give ourselves in this way by opening our heart to him to meet his need not only for a kingdom, but also a dwelling place.